Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today we're speaking with Michelle Haberland, Associate Professor of History and Director of Women's and Gender Studies at Georgia Southern University. Her new book is Striking Beauties, Women Apparel Workers in the U.S. South, 1930-2000, to published by the University of Georgia Press. Michelle Haberland, welcome to Working History. Thank you for having me. So in Striking Beauties, you discuss the apparel industry and its largely female workforce, focusing specifically on the U.S. South in the period between the 1930s and roughly the year 2000. And you talk about this period of the apparel industry's history as a middle story of a sort of trilogy. Um, And so I'm wondering if you could give us a brief overview of the industry's history up to the point where Striking Beauties picks up, and then a little overview of of where we are there. So the apparel industry begins in the Northeast, particularly in New York City, but across the Northeast. And this is basically when homework, that's clothes being sewn at home, move outside the home to sewing rooms and sweatshops. The ready-to-wear clothing market develops around the turn of the century in the Northeast, and and this is the time when you see immigrant women working in these these close, uh, fetid sweatshops, sewing clothes for this growing ready-to-wear market. And these are clothes that they could never, ever dream to afford to wear or to purchase and wear mm-hmm. themselves, but they're they're serving this market. And the way I see it, this this first part of the story, the first part of the trilogy, if you will, um, begins to wrap up when the uh, tragic Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire takes place um, and in 1911, and you see 146 women, mostly young immigrant women, losing their lives um, in a very public uh, tragedy that receives a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And that tragedy leads to great advances in both unionization of the industry's workers and improvements in safety Mm -hmm. as required by these union contracts. So company owners respond to this by running away. That's what we call it, running away Mm -hmm. from these increased levels of unionization and demands for better wages and working conditions. So that that's where I see the the process or the first part of the story ending. Um, and then the second part of the story of the trilogy begins when the companies start moving south, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're sort of pushed out of the Northeast by this increased level of unionization. And they're drawn to the south by their lack of unionization. They're pushed out of the Northeast by higher wages, and of course, lower wages uh, in the South mm-hmm. pulls the factories to the region. So you, you you see that this second story starts off with really short moves, like short moves south to places like Pennsylvania and Maryland, mm-hmm. but then eventually they make their way all the way to the Deep South, where the wages are even lower, um, to places like Jackson, Alabama, and Florence, South Carolina. And you, what's interesting also about the way that the industry heads south in this second part of the trilogy is that the industry is attracted to 
rural towns, Mm -hmm. not cities in the South so much, but really rural towns. And this is because it's believed that the workers in these towns are more desperate, are Mm -hmm. willing to work for even lower wages. Mm -hmm. And so that's the part that's striking beauties at that second part of the trilogy. That's the part that striking beauties um, focuses on. The final story in the trilogy is the move to the global South. Mm -hmm. For the apparel industry, you see the first American firms closing up shop um, in the South and opening up new factories in places like initially Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras. But later, the industry, the apparel industry, will move to further corners of the global South to places like China, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. And that's not addressed in my book, Striking Beauties. That third part of the trilogy is being written now, right? And right. Um, mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see what transpires with um, the industry as it moves to this global South. Right. And why did you choose to focus on the Southern industry in this particular period? Um, you know, because as you mentioned, the uh, the sort of third part of the of the story is still developing in a lot of ways still being written, but it's, you know, being engaged with nonetheless. Um, so, so why this moment? Why did you see this as a particularly interesting and demonstrative um, point from which to understand what was happening in the industry? Well, I think Beth, that there were two things that drew me to the topic of the Southern garment industry. First, there was so much written on the textile industry, mm-hmm. not the least of which by you, I might add. <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, that it seemed to me that the textile industry was so large in the field of Southern history, particularly in the post-World War II period, mm-hmm. that we didn't hear anything about this number two manufacturing industry, the apparel industry. So it's almost obscured. And it seemed to me that there were stories that needed to be told there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I also knew that the story had to be a bit different from the history of the textile workers and their industry because the, the industry had a much higher rate of female employment or a higher percentage of women workers. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty sure that that would have uh, an impact on on what we understand about Southern industrialization. So I wanted to explore that. I had to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And I also, there was an article I read when I was a graduate student at Tulane. I never mention who wrote the article because I don't want to slam them, but it was a, it's a very old scholar. And, and the article just made a passing reference to the fact that the textile industry was difficult to organize because it had, you know, nearly 50% of its workers were women workers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's not a satisfactory answer. Right. You know, like, why? Why are they harder to organize? Sure. Yeah. So I mentioned this to my old advisor, Bob Zeger at University of Florida, um, and he pointed me in the direction of the needle trades. He said, if you really want to talk about that, you should look at the industry that had the most women workers and you should look at the needle trades. And mm-hmm. so I did. Mm-hmm. And so I did. Okay, great. So let's talk about the composition of the apparel industry workforce, which you're sort of getting into here. You know, as you noted, the the industry was heavily dependent on women workers, and even more so than um, than the textile industry, which which, as you also have noted, is really almost um, sort of the de facto mill worker that you think of is a woman. So why, um, you know, why was the apparel industry so heavily dependent on these women workers? Well, it's partly because the industry grows out of work that was done within the home by women, right? Mm -hmm. So sewing clothes was an essentially domestic craft that evolved into women's outside work. And that wasn't really challenged by the apparel industry. Although I should mention there are a couple 
different efforts, the most uh, famous of which takes place in um, a Levi's factory in Blue Ridge, Georgia, in the 1970s, where they try to challenge this association of women and sewing. And they basically recruit men to work in this Levi's factory. Mm -hmm. The whole project is a dismal failure. They can't get any men in the northwest corner of Georgia to, to actually take these jobs and Levi's eventually abandons it. So it's, it's clearly a really close and deep association. And I think it grows out of this domestic craft that makes its way to the factory floor. I think that has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what impact did Southern women's employment have on both their families and their communities? You know, it, it, it's a huge impact. I mean, the the talking to this early generation of white women workers who are get jobs in in these early Southern factories, I mean, they, their lives were completely transformed. I interviewed a bunch of women from um, the Vanity Fair factory in Jackson, Alabama, for Striking Beauties, and the women who took those first jobs—they were all white. They spent a lot of time telling me about how important those wages were to their family's economy. Several women of the old generation made a tremendous emphasis on the fact that they painted their houses mm. for the first time. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a big deal. They painted their houses, right? Later generations would talk about sending their children to college and that their wages that they earned at the factory were the thing that allowed them to be able to send their children to college. Others, there, others talk about um, just their contribution made it possible to make ends meet for the families. Mm-hmm. There was a big recruiting effort in the 1940s to bring Vanity Fair, this company from Reading, Pennsylvania, down to Jackson and Monroe, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And when this this took place, they were successful, then they finally bring the company down and the company opens its doors. Everyone joked, particularly the women, that Vanity Fair put the women to work and the men stayed at home and cleaned house. I can't tell you how many women at Vanity Fair told me that. And I would Uh laugh and say, did they really do that? And they said, no, of course not. I mean, the men worked in the sawmill um, in town. But it does suggest how important the arrival of the Vanity Fair factory was to these communities. So for this early generation of women workers, you know, there's really only two choices. It's basically the fields or the factory. Mm -hmm. And women, the early generation of white women who work in places like Vanity Fair, they preferred the factory. It was cooler. It was modern. Uh, They had fans that would blow um, over giant slabs of ice in the factory. And so it made those working conditions seem a lot better than what they found in the fields in Alabama and Mm -hmm. Mississippi. So I think overall, this was really important. It had a tremendous impact on um, these southern towns. As you mentioned uh, very briefly, which I think we should tease out just a, a little bit more, the apparel industry in the South was not only heavily female, but it was also largely white, um, especially in the in the early years. And yes. um, so I'm wondering if you can explain the racial dynamics in the Southern apparel industry. And maybe let's start first with why it was so heavily white when the when the factories started, you know, moving um, in the 30s, 40s and 50s. And then talk about how and why it came to be desegregated um, later. 
Okay, so that, that's a really great question because it's, it's, it's an interesting story. So when the garment industry moves south, these companies, for the most part, accept and adapt to the Jim Crow segregation of the South. These new factory jobs were clearly demarcated as jobs for white women. Mm -hmm. And it really isn't until the civil rights movement and legislation like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that you see African-American women hired in large numbers. So Southern communities that were in the pre-civil rights era um, seeking to attract Northern apparel factories, they would boast that they had many white women ready to work and they mm -hmm. would emphasize their race. So it's clear that that these communities saw the whiteness of their labor pool, if you will, and the femininity, I might add, of their labor pool as, as an advantage. Um, I'll tell you a story. There was a, a personnel secretary at Vanity Fair who gave me a lot of insight into how the factory sort of remained white. And one of the strategies uh, she was directly involved in to keep black workers um, out of Vanity Fair was uh, what they called a dexterity test. Mm -hmm. So in order to get hired after you submitted your application, you would come to the factory and do this little dexterity test. And they described it as, uh, or she described it, sorry, as a um, kind of putting nuts on bolts and things mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. and seeing how quickly you could do that, right? And she said, no matter how fast the African-American workers were, they never made it to the cut. That right. was just how they made it. So right. in that way, it was like a very, you know, sort of corrupt and obvious way to keep the factories white. I, you know, as I think about it more, though, I do want to add that not all the jobs in, say, the pre-1960s period in the apparel industry were designated as white jobs. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the city of New Orleans, which has its own very distinctive history of race relations, and I think that needs to be noted, but that because of that, what you see in New Orleans is that factories tended to hire all black or all white sewing machine operators mm -hmm. for their for their sewing rooms. Mm -hmm. So it's it's like it's still segregated, but in New Orleans, black women could find some employment in the pre-civil rights days in the apparel industry. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that from time to time in other places like there's in Atlanta, you see Durham, but these are really atypical cases. The apparel factories in the South were overwhelmingly white. Uh, prior to the advances of the civil rights movement. But I think these these exceptions are important to note as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And was it the case in apparel, similar to how it was in textiles, where you had the bulk of the workforce, particularly the machine operators, were white, but there were some jobs that were specifically designated for African-American workers, um, yeah, you know, like unloading train cars, unpacking the cotton, those sorts of things. Were there Was there sort of a similar dynamic in apparel as well? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I'm actually kind of repeating um, what the misperception of some of the workers, the white workers that I interviewed. They they all told me the factory is all white. The factory is all white. This is the Vanity Fair factory in Jackson, Alabama. But then I, one of them very kindly shared um, a company photo from 1955. Mm -hmm. With me, And as you look at that photo, it's very clear that there are a group of maybe a dozen African-American men in the back. Uh -huh. 
And they're like erased from the narrative, though. You know, like nobody's sure. talking about them in their interviews with me unless I bring them up. And what it, I come to find out, they were basically janitors and occasionally pressers. Okay. That was the best job you could get as an African American in the South and pressing the um, clothes before you ship them off. Okay. And what was the process of desegregation like, both in terms of sort of the legalities of it, but but then also how did it play out on the shop floor? Yeah, desegregation was tough. I don't think um, uh, anyone I interviewed or any archival source suggested otherwise. It Mm -hmm. It was not an easy transition. White women workers... I'll tell you about their perspective first. White women workers had to work alongside, and they would say it like that, had to work alongside African-American women workers after uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And sewing in a factory setting is a very interdependent process. So you there's a line and you have one task that you do over and over and over. And you depend on the person next to you to do her work efficiently so that you have a constant stream of work mm-hmm. and and you can do your job. White women workers frequently complained that black women's work was slow or of an inferior quality and that this had a negative impact on their wages for oh, okay. because they're paid they're paid the best money if they make uh, quota is what mm-hmm. they say. They make mm-hmm. quota. And that's a minimum number of hems or whatever sewed per hour, that kind of thing. And if your neighbor was slow in getting you your, your clothes that you were going to sew, um, it could have a really negative impact on your earnings. And so there was a lot of animosity around that. Sure. And <laughs> was this but, actually the case or was it just sort of perception? Well, that's a good, th- that's a good question. The African-American women I talked to felt like that, perception was born out of pure racism. But there Mm -hmm. was another dynamic too. And that had to do with the fact that, and and now we'll talk a little bit about um, the perspective of black women, getting a job at Vanity Fair or other apparel factories in the South was like a total ticket to better wages and a chance at being middle class, right? Mm -hmm. This was the idea. But just as they get an entrance into the apparel industry and to these jobs, the industry changes. So there are trade restrictions that are being lowered. And then also the fashion industry changes. Mm -hmm. Um, The fashion industry, it's not quite yet, we're not to the point of fast fashion, which is where we are now. But styles are changing much more rapidly. Think about Mm -hmm. it in the 1960s when you think about style. There were fads and fashions, and these are changing very rapidly. And manufacturers have to respond to that. And that had a that changed what was going on on the shop floor for the workers, black and white, because it meant that they never spent a lot of time on one style. They had to keep changing styles. And so that may have meant that these women who were new to the factory, the black women who were new to the factory, might have been a little bit slower than their white, more experienced uh, workers that they worked with. That may have been the case. But it is also clearly racist as well. I mean, there were the predictable battles over restrooms, for instance. One of the earliest women who was African-American to get employment in Vanity Fair, she recalled that, this is her word, she said, prejudiced white people wouldn't go into the stall after you oh. and stuff like that. And uh-huh. So there's that that kind of personal dynamic sure. too on the shop floor that changed. So competition from foreign manufacturers puts like negative pressure on the industry, on women's wages. And 
and then there's a changing styles. And I think all of that combined with desegregation made for a very difficult chapter in the history of the Southern apparel industry. Right. And so what was the perspective of black women who came into, um, into the factories? They very much felt that they were fortunate to get these jobs, but they definitely felt that they were not seen as partners, mm-hmm. that there was segregation within or separation within um, the sewing lines or the lines in the sewing rooms. And that you know, wasn't a conducive to good work, right? Mm-hmm. And so that they felt like that was an obstacle. There was also, it was kind of funny to see that African-American women felt some pressure to be exceptional at their jobs, to do very, very well because they're the pioneers, they're the first mm-hmm. ones. Mm-hmm. And, and white women workers are like completely oblivious to this. They don't recall this at all. They, they, in fact, most of the white workers told me the civil rights movement really didn't happen in Jackson, Alabama, and I'm laughing because the black workers remembered very vividly Uh the context in which they gained access to those jobs. So let's shift gears just a tiny bit, in some ways, kind of staying along the lines of talking about the industry's workforce, and talk a little bit about um, union organizing in the factories. And as was the case with many especially with the runaway industries, um, industries in the South, unions had a very hard time getting a foothold in Southern apparel. And as you mentioned, you know, this is one of the reasons why the factories come in the first place. And so I'm wondering if you can explain uh, why this was the case, uh, especially given that apparel unions in the North, you know, by the 1930s had a decent presence in the industry and had made some advances for the workers there. Yeah, this is a really important point. The companies that run away, that move south, do so with the stated intention of escaping unionization. These And the southern communities that recruited the apparel factories make no bones about their opposition to unions either. So it's kind of a mutual love affair. We're opposed to unions. Mm -hmm. Leaders of, of southern towns flat out state that they will not allow a union to operate in their community. And uh, that's a pretty powerful statement because these letters recruiting the industry or factories to the south, these letters are written by local chambers of commerce and, the, as I say, the you know leaders of these small southern towns. And the sense was that they would do everything they could to keep unions from gaining a foothold in their towns. Mm-hmm. And then I think also early on in the history of the Southern apparel industry, you see on the national level the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, which prohibited closed shops and led to states passing right-to-work laws and Southern states jump at the chance to pass those right-to-work laws. And all of these were designed to create a hostile environment Mm -hmm. for unions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I'd add one more thing too here that – it's more intangible, but I think uh, no less real. It's just harder to define that there was a kind of uh, pervasive anti-union sentiment among Southern workers themselves as a result of the failed 1934 uh, great textile strike. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the memories of blacklists and fired workers 
that those memories are very fresh in the years surrounding World War II when much of the when many of the factories moved to the south. Mm-hmm. And that also helped to create a hostile environment for the unions. So I think all of these things work together to create you know, a, a tough environment in which for unions to operate. Mm-hmm. And yet, in Striking Beauties, you do talk about instances where the apparel workers, the female apparel workers especially, do try to organize. Yeah, um, and yeah. so, um, you know, if you could just talk a little bit about uh, maybe a couple instances of that and um, how that whole process played out in the context of this both business owner and worker hostility to unions. So the unions are really keen on following the industry south. Let's to start there. So the unions themselves, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America and the um, International Ladies Garment Workers Union, the ILGWU, they are keen on following the industry. And they do. They directly follow the industry and try to organize workers. But they they encounter a lot of hostility. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, though, is that the places where they're successful is where the women workers in various small factories, say, in, uh, in the really almost sewing rooms, they don't really look like big factories or really sewing rooms in places like Memphis and Dallas in the 1930s, you'll see they do create locals because the women themselves Themselves, women workers themselves are requesting the union. Mm-hmm. And that's the key to those early locals gaining, uh, union locals gaining a foothold is this uh, f- the combination of the unions wanting to come down and the Southern women workers in some instances demanding union representation, thinking they'll get a better uh, deal if they have a contract rather than individually trying to make this work for themselves. So that's, that's part of the story as well. Were there any successful organizing campaigns or strikes that did result in a union contract? And then am I to assume that they affiliated with one of the two unions? That's right. Typically, okay. there was a couple United Garment Workers unions. That's one of the earliest uh, apparel unions. There are a couple Southern locals for the UGW, but they fade very quickly. The stronger mm-hmm. ones in the pre sort of 1950s, 1960s period, you're going to see our ILGWU and mm-hmm. ACWA um, union locals. And you'll see that off the top of my head, you can see them in Texas. You can find these union locals in old union locals in Memphis, Dallas in particular. These places um, tended to have vibrant locals, but they are brief, you know, mm-hmm. as the industry, what often happens is that the workers will go on strike, the company will close up shop and for a period of time, and basically the workers go somewhere else right. and they have succeeded in, then the company will reopen and recruit non-striking workers. And that happened with a great deal of frequency in places like Memphis and Dallas. Right. Did the organizing dynamics change as the industry desegregated? Yes, very, very much so. There was a strong belief among unionists that black workers would be more sympathetic to unionization and that this was related to their experiences in the long civil rights movement mm-hmm. with collect- collective action, that, that African-American women workers had this experience of organizing for civil rights and working together in collective actions. And so because of that, they would find unionization to be similar and and comfortable in a way that white women workers might not have found. And all of the unions see themselves 
both the ACWA and the ILGW see themselves as very progressive on race when they come to the South. They see themselves as as cutting edge. Now, I will make a note that, you know, it's not as if the ILGW never had any segregated locals in the South. Mm-hmm. It most certainly did. And that was true and, and, and a fact that they couldn't deny. But they kind of apologized for that. You know, the unions themselves seemed, the union leaderships, I should say, seemed to take that as like a necessary first step. But right. that's not how we truly are. So the unions see themselves almost like a branch of the civil rights movement, that what they're doing is is as progressive uh, and as, as progressive a social justice movement as a civil rights movement, and I think that's really telling and and fairly sincere. By the time you get to the 1950s and the 1960s, I think that that story begins to change, and there's a real sincere effort to organize black workers, largely because they think they're going to be more successful at it. Mm-hmm. But that's that is part of the story. So sort of pragmatic approach, yeah. you know, from start to finish and, and you know, who would be easiest to organize and, and keep in the union and so forth. You know, as the industry starts its decline in the South, um, one of the responses from the union uh, and, you know, to also to, with support of, of, the, of the rank and file was the union label campaign. And can you talk about what this campaign was, its goals, just give us sort of a, you know, 30,000 foot view and um, then we can drill down a little bit. Sure. So to give you that 30,000 foot view, you need to see sort of the origins of the union label mechanism or strategy. The use of labels on products goes way back in the history of unions in America mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and worker activism in America. So all the way back in 1875, so in the 19th century, you have cigar makers in San Francisco designing a label to be placed on cigar boxes to indicate that the scars were made by white men under sanitary conditions. Mm-hmm. And this is their way of combating the threat of less highly paid Chinese workers who are making cigars at the same time. And they're trying, the whole strategy there is to try to create, through the use of the label, consumer demand or consumer preference for higher priced cigars made by white men in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And that strategy it continues. It it's, it changes a little bit, but it, it, that's basically the the whole strategy for the union label campaign, as used by the apparel industry unions. So apparel unions try to create that same consumer preference for union goods by sewing in a label into the clothes that are made in union factories. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that consumers, when they go to that ready-to-wear market and purchase their clothes, some consumers will look for that label and make a decision whether to buy that garment based on the presence of that label. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there were various efforts by the union, uh, by the ACWA and the ILGWU in the years before World War II, but it's really after World War II that you see the apparel industry really organize around these union labels, develop their own union label strategies, and these are national campaigns. And what's interesting is as these label campaigns mature, they begin, the unions begin to see what was there all along. But wasn't reflected in the early union campaigns, and that is that the workers who work in their factories, in these union factories, they are consumers too. Mm -hmm. 
right? right? Because a majority of household purchases are made by women. And so they start to realize like that's, that's, uh, that's something special that we have in our industry and we're going to use it. So they start to appeal to consumers, not only on the basis of gender or but also as this idea that you're the worker and the consumer right and mm-hmm. you can have this kind of uh impact so i think the end of the story of the union label story is is kind of fun it's um the ilgw in the 1970s creates a television commercial and that was um called Look for the Union Label. Mm -hmm. And that received a ton of attention. Uh, Unfortunately, this was not particularly successful. I mean, it received a lot of media attention. Everybody remembered the jingle. Uh, Should I even sing it? Do you think I should? Yeah, no, please go ahead. I would love to have you sing it. Well, I don't sing very well. But anyways, look for the union label when you are buying a coat shirt or blouse. And it goes on. Remember somewhere the workers are sewing. And the idea here is is that, you know, you, the women worker, have solidarity with the women consumer. You're one and the same people. And it's also very much directed at foreign imports Mm -hmm. because by the 19, really, beginning in the 1960s, the trade barriers for the apparel industry start to go down and foreign goods come into the stores, the retail operations um, in the United States and consumers have a choice. And the Look for the Union Label campaign suggested that they should choose union label goods. The sad part of the story is that that's kind of where it ends, right? right. Mm-hmm. The, the imports continue. And now, of course, it's almost impossible to buy clothes made in America. And certainly to buy clothes made by union labor is very difficult in the United States. That's right. So in some ways, this was almost like a, a, a precursor to the more ubiquitous buy, you know, buy American campaigns and those That's sorts right. of things that came, at, came into right. in the 1980s, too. I, I think it's really important to, to, to note that the label campaigns failed to stop the industry from moving abroad, right? Mm-hmm. That That's what mm-hmm. they're trying to do is to save jobs. And as catchy as that little jingle was, it wasn't enough to stop the industry from moving. Nick Bonanno, who was the... Um, longtime director of the ILG's Southeastern Region District. Um, He once told me that apparel is like water. It seeks the lowest level. Mm -hmm. And as those barriers are removed, the apparel industry is just sort of seeping to the lowest wage level. And so advances in transportation, all these other things help to facilitate the the, uh, drift of the apparel industry. Um, outside to places outside of the United States. And in that way, the label campaigns were essentially a failure. Right. And do you think this is instructive in any way, uh, in terms of when we think about the responsible consumerism campaigns that are becoming more and more prevalent, you know, as the industry has completely offshored uh, in apparel and in a number of other things. What can we take away from that story, you know, for some of these consumer oriented movements for better working conditions? Well, I think that one of the problems 
with the approach of the ILG and the ACWA in the 1970s and continuing through the uh, 1980s and 1990s was that they saw these foreign workers as threats Mm -hmm. rather than potential unionists. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, International Ladies Garment Workers Union, the first word is international, but from the ILG's perspective, it really looks like when push comes to shove, what they mean by international is Canada and America. Right. Mm -hmm. Don't mean the workers in Mexico originally, nor do they mean now the workers in Bangladesh. They they don't mean those workers at all. And and instead they see them as threats. Um Dana Frank makes that point um in her book about the Bi American movement. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such a fantastic book. She 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 points out that that apparel workers respond to threat of imports by supporting the Buy American movement, but they it's almost um, jingoistic or, or a nativist that they have this sort of anti-foreign uh, worker sentiment. Instead of saying, gee, can we raise those guys up too so they're not so attractive to the, the industry and we could stop, you know, stop the spread and save some jobs back at home, mm-hmm. you don't see a lot of effort to do that. And I think that was a mistake. I do. Mm-hmm. So sort of a lost opportunity there. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, I don't mean to discount how difficult it is to organize in places like China. Sure. Where you're not allowed to organize, right? I mean, like that, that I don't mean to discount how important that is. I guess I mean to say that it didn't seem to be their initial response, though, either. Right. right. The apparel unions journals are replete with with images of foreign workers being exploited, degraded, and they're almost sort of talked about like they don't have dignity. They're mm-hmm. they're worthless. And that's I think was very unfortunate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in recent years, the uh, apparel industry, as you've as we've talked about, has really completely offshored almost entirely. And uh, first, as you mentioned, to Mexico and and Central America and so forth, and now it's really sort of worldwide. And as this uh, globalization of the industry has occurred. There have been many terrible tragedies that, for one reason or another, have attracted an immense amount of media attention. The fires, collapse of the Rana Plaza building in Bangladesh. So in your assessment, sort of moving us into this third part of the trilogy that you introduced us to, where is the global apparel industry today? And do you think that we're seeing a return to the days of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, or are we in some sort of completely different moment here? You know, I actually think we are looking at a kind of repeat, you know, what does Mark Twain say? History doesn't repeat itself, but it does sometimes rhyme. I think we're kind <laughs> of in that in that vein now. Mm-hmm. The ind- what, what's happened basically is that as the industries moved, or as the industry, excuse me, and factories moved to the global south, they declared they were going to self-regulate, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to uh, create inspections, factory inspection systems and protocols. And it's pretty obvious at this point that their attempts at self-regulation were pathetic mm-hmm. and not not effective uh, in any substantial way. And, you know, I want to mention to sort of 
look back a little bit at the, the second period, uh, the second part of the trilogy, if you will, you don't see this in the United States South. You know, you don't see a Triangle Factory fire in the South. You don't see in the factories of uh, rural Alabama or rural Mississippi, um, you know, a Rana Plaza building collapse. You mm-hmm. just don't see those things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because although the unions weren't terribly successful in moving south with the factories regulations did and these factories that are built are modern factories and they're built according to codes right Mm -hmm. so i think you don't see that in places like china and bangladesh and pakistan and that's really pretty bad so for all the exploitation and difficult working conditions in the united states south the factories were by and large, pretty safe. And I think that self-regulation model that we've seen develop isn't particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. And then you, know, you have also, I think, other missed opportunities, you know, NAFTA, and uh, now we see the TPP. These are opportunities to create, in my opinion, you know, ironclad regulations about worker safety mm-hmm. and worker wages and things like this. Mm-hmm. And but they're missed opportunities. That's not what happened. That's not what's happening at all. And I think, you know, the power of the United States as a leading, you know, as a, a leading consuming country in the global economy means we could use that to or leverage that position to maybe raise the bottom of the apparel industry in the global south. And I'd love to see that happen. There are organizations like the ILO, the International Labor Organization that play minimal roles, but they could be playing a much larger role Mm -hmm. in regulating and inspecting factories. So I think we've got mechanisms there that, that could transnational mechanisms, I might add, Mm -hmm. that could be used to create better conditions and hopefully prevent tragedies like what we've seen in the last few years, which were really unacceptable and entirely preventable. And it's sort of a question of how do you marshal the political will to get there? And and we're working on it. Right, exactly. (laughs) But it's hard. It's very hard. It is. uh, And I think it's also important to recognize that another way to do this, and and I was very impressed with uh, what happened in Bangladesh um, after Rana Plaza, the workers there had their own organizations that were ready two days after Rana Plaza to give to these big, what we call high street companies, apparel companies that are well-known brands that all of us wear, they they gave them uh, basically a document that said, here's what you need to do. And American companies said, absolutely not. We will not sign this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's really unfortunate. And it puts the consumer in a tremendously difficult position because it really is challenging to buy clothes if you're middle class in particular if you're wealthy you can probably buy some domestically produced clothes but if you're if you're a working person it's not going to be able to afford uh those you know domestically produced clothes and so you are going to buy clothes built, uh, made under horrific conditions and very dangerous conditions I think there's opportunities here that are definitely being missed and I hope that our you know political class gets their act together on this. Okay, well, Michelle Haberlin, thanks very much for talking to us about Striking Beauties. And uh, you've given us a lot to a lot to chew on and a lot to think about as we wrap up this, uh, this episode of Working History. So thanks very much. Hey, thank you very much. It was fun.
Thank you again to Michelle Haberland, Associate Professor of History and Director of Women's and Gender Studies at Georgia Southern University. Her book is Striking Beauties, Women Apparel Workers in the U.S. South, 1930-2000, to published by the University of Georgia Press. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Visit us online and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working history.